Welcome to episode 34 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today's episode is devoted to the Jewish community of Denmark, which is the fourth and certainly not least interesting or least numerically significant of the different Jewish communities in the Nordic countries that we will have covered in this series. Uh, This episode is a little bit delayed for several reasons. First, I intended to have this done by the end of February, but this year, as every other year, I forgot that February is a short month and that we're already in March. So apologies for that. And also the past, I don't know, five or ten days, I've been totally preoccupied with the situation on the ground in Ukraine and trying to keep up with my contacts there and follow that news. So I've been preoccupied, but today I do want to share with you some thoughts on the history of Denmark itself, the history of Danish Jews, and why this community matters. So we're going to start today with exploding a much cherished myth, and an interesting sideline of speculation for you might be the relationship between history and myth, and how much of what we think of as history is really mythology and vice versa. But this myth was a positive one, and it's the myth of King Christian and his wife wearing the famous yellow star, and the supposition that the Nazis, during their occupation of Denmark during the Second World War, ordered all Jews to wear a yellow star. And the urban legend has it that the king and his wife stood out on their balcony and said, if Jews have to wear a yellow star, today all Danes are Jewish. In fact, this story and others like it originated, believe it or not, in the offices of a North American organization called the National Denmark America Association, where a handful of Danish nationals opened a propaganda unit called Friends of Danish Freedom and Democracy. And they are the ones who created this story of the king and the star. Now, does that mean that the Danish king was not a hero or that the Danes didn't do an extraordinary job of saving their Jews during World War II? On the contrary, they did an amazing job, and I will share that with you. But I will also tell you that the other European king who was popularly credited with saving all his Jews, King Boris of Bulgaria, if you go back to the episode we did on Bulgaria, you will discover that an award that he had been given posthumously by Yad Vashem was withdrawn because it was discovered that he only saved all the Jews in what was historically Bulgarian territory. And territories occupied just before and during the early months of World War II, sort of on the fringes of the Bulgarian heartland, did have some Jewish settlements, and King Boris did nothing to save those Jews. So even if he saved more than 90% of the Jews in Bulgaria, he didn't save them all. And I think there's a lesson here about blacks and whites, painting anybody as all good or all evil, runs certain risks. In any case, rather than speculate idly, let me tell you what the Danes did do to protect their Jews and why more than 99% of Danish Jewry survived the war. Both Denmark and Norway were invaded by Germany on April 9th of 1940, and they were subsequently occupied. 
But Danish authorities on many levels made clear to the Nazi occupiers that they would not cooperate in any specifically anti-Jewish measures because there was no Jewish problem in Denmark, that they would construe an anti-Jewish measure as an anti-Danish measure, and it would not be good for the brotherly, friendly relations that the German occupiers wished to have with the Danes. So in 1943, the night between October 1st and 2nd, which was the Jewish New Year, and when the German authorities assumed that all Jews would be either home or in their synagogues, the deportation order went into effect. But the Danes had already made their preparations to smuggle out the vast majority of Danish Jews in small watercraft, small boats, fishing vessels, whatever, in a flotilla that eventually carried more than 7,200 people to safety in Sweden. Now, the distance wasn't great, five or six miles. And not everybody who smuggled Jews out did so out of the kindness of their heart. Some charged exorbitant fees, like 10 times their monthly salary. But a lot of the costs of this operation were borne by Danish philanthropists and even the Danish king who paid some of the less altruistic fishermen and boat owners to participate in this large-scale operation. Now, there were at the time roughly 7,800 Jews in Denmark, and only 7,200 and some odd were carried across the sea into Sweden. What about the rest? Well, about 500 of them remained hidden in Danish homes and farms and stuff in the countryside. And a couple of hundred were, in fact, deported to Theresienstadt in what is today the Czech Republic. But the Danes then interceded with the Nazis and asked that those Jews be returned, which eventually they were. So all in all, less than 100 out of Denmark's roughly 8,000 Jews perished in various aspects of the Holocaust. And most of those perished from hunger during their deportation to Theresienstadt. It's a pretty amazing record. And the fact that the story of the Yellow Star is urban legend shouldn't detract from the overall heroism of the Danish people. So then the natural question is, why did the Danes act so differently from their neighbors in Sweden and Norway? And why were they collectively so heroic on behalf of their Jewish compatriots? And to understand this, or to begin to answer this question, we need to look more closely both at the history of Denmark and at the history of the Jewish community of Denmark, which we will do in short order. So by now, if you've been a regular listener to this series of podcasts, you know that most countries in Europe changed borders many times, and the historic definition of France doesn't always correspond to what France is today, and that was the same with all these Nordic countries, whether it's Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. They grew and they shrank and they morphed into not necessarily different areas, but definitely different boundaries. And the power relations among them also changed. So obviously, there was always a very close relationship among Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And for more than a century, they lived in a union called the Kalmar Union, 
which was a pretty effective uh, system of government and of rule. But it didn't last long because most of it depended on a queen named Margareta, and once she died, her sons and grandsons were much less competent than she. The Danish royal house makes a reasonable claim to be the oldest royal family in Europe, and it dates back to a man named Gorm the Old, who reigned as king from about 936 of the Common Era until he died in 958. He was succeeded by his son, Harold Bluetooth, and the Danes were united and officially Christianized shortly after Harold came to power in the year 965. This very early version of Denmark was quite aggressive and expansionist, not at all like the sort of pacifist nation we think of Denmark as being today. They controlled most of England after a series of wars of conquest, and effectively, by the year 1014, England had totally submitted to the Danes. Now, the Danes were a subset of the group of people called the Vikings, and ultimately, it was Vikings living in Normandy who finally conquered England in the Norman Conquest in 1066 and created more or less the foundations of modern England. Late in the 11th century, there was a Danish king named Canute who mysteriously later in life became a saint or perhaps posthumously was sainted, I don't know. But when he died, it was really the end of the Viking Age and never again would massive fleets of Nordic vessels meet every year to ravage the rest of Christian Europe. What's interesting, however, is that these same Vikings, under a new name and with a veneer of both Catholicism and the French language, were known as Normans. And they did continue to ravage not only Sicily and parts of Italy and parts of the Mediterranean, but even Constantinople. And at the same time, former Vikings in the persons of Swedes became very expansionist and laid siege to the city of Lviv, which is the major city today in northwest Ukraine, to which many countries have temporarily shifted their embassies and their diplomatic personnel. But if not as Vikings, then certainly as Danes, Danes continued their expansionist activities. And in the 13th century, they launched various crusades in northeastern Europe. Notably, they conquered Estonia, they conquered much of Pomerania, sort of the Baltic coast of Germany and what is today Poland were effectively under Danish rule for a while under a king named Valdemar. Now, that's not the same as Voldemort in the Harry Potter series, but it's very close and one name may have inspired the other. The Middle Ages saw very close cooperation between the Catholic Church and the Danish monarchy. And that continued through Margaret and the Kalmar Union, which technically lasted from 1397 to 1523. The Kalmar Union fell apart for a number of reasons, although the union between Denmark and Norway survived until 1814. One of the reasons it fell apart was the Protestant Reformation, which really affected Denmark considerably, maybe more than other Nordic countries. And the Danish Reformation, which began in the mid-1520s, 
led to a translation of the New Testament into Danish, which became an instant bestseller, and led to a lot of legal measures that made the Lutheran Church the official state church in Denmark. In the 16th century, Denmark was not immune to the religious wars that swept much of the rest of Europe, which were essentially wars between Protestants and Catholics to see who would establish power, who would retain a lot of church property, etc., etc. Denmark officially became Lutheran on October 30th in 1536. And in 1537, the reconstituted state council approved the Lutheran ordinances, which were worked out by Danish theologians and based on the Augsburg Confession and on Luther's Little Catechism. The ideas of the wider European Enlightenment became extremely popular in Denmark. And in the last 15 years of the 1800s, Danish authorities relaxed considerably the censorship which had existed since the beginning of the 17th century. There was also a growing sense of nationalism, of pride in the Danish language and Danish culture. There were a lot of reforms based on the ideals of the French Revolution, and Denmark emerged sort of loud and proud into the modern world. And as an example of its full participation in the modern world, it also wanted to have a global empire like its many European neighbors did, the Netherlands, England, France, etc. So the Danes established several colonies in the Caribbean and one colony in India. The only one of these that still really retains some kind of ties to Denmark is St. Croix in the Caribbean. But that's also a very interesting intersection between the history of Denmark and the history of Danish Jews, because half of the European population in the Danish Caribbean territories were Jews. And these Jews controlled, among other things, the manufacture of chocolate in the Caribbean, which became an important item of trade. Anyway, in the 19th century, Denmark became increasingly more liberal, and after the European revolutions of 1848, it became a constitutional monarchy on June 5, 1849. The first known settlement of Jews on Danish territory took place in 1619, after the ambitious King Christian IV founded a town called Glückstadt on the River Elbe in what is today the German state of Schleswig-Holstein. He founded this settlement, city, town, whatever, in 1616, and it began to founder and looked like it might crumble. So the king invited a very successful Jewish merchant named Albert Dionis to settle in the town, along with a few other Jews, and their status in 1628 was formalized by being promised protection, the right to hold private religious services that were not Lutheran, and to maintain their own cemetery. So this Albert Dionis got special status within the Danish royal court, especially as a source of credit and financing for ambitious major projects. Another Jew, Gabriel Gomez, who obviously was Sephardic, persuaded Frederick III 
to allow Sephardic Jews to reside in Denmark while conducting trade. During that period, Ashkenazi Jews, as opposed to Sephardim, were forbidden to enter Denmark unless they were specifically granted letters of passage, and they were subject to considerable fines if caught without the required documents. Nonetheless, many of the Jews who settled in the Kingdom of Denmark in the coming years were, in fact, Ashkenazi. Following the Thirty Years' War, which created a fiscal crisis for the Danish crown, the king, Frederick III, encouraged Jewish immigration. The first Jewish community was founded in a newly established town called Fredericia in 1682, and two years later, in 1684, an Ashkenazic community was founded in Copenhagen. By 1780, there were approximately 1,600 Jews in Denmark, though all were admitted by special permission granted only on the basis of personal wealth. For a brief period in 1782, they were even forced to attend Lutheran services, but they were not required to live in ghettos, and they had a significant degree of self-governance. More than 100 years before this, Jews began settling in the Danish West Indies in 1655, and by 1796, the first synagogue there was inaugurated. In its heyday in the middle of the 1800s, the Jewish community in the Danish West Indies made up more than half of the European population. One of the earliest colonial governors, Gabriel Milan, was a Sephardic Jew. As in many other parts of Europe during the late 19th century, increasing integration accelerated assimilation of Jews into mainstream society, including higher rates of intermarriage. At the beginning of the 20th century, events such as the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, the Russo-Japanese War in 1904, and the Russian Revolution of 1905 led to an influx of approximately 3,000 Jewish refugees into Denmark. And these new arrivals changed the character of Danish Jewry in a fundamental way. They were more likely to be socialist than religious. They were more likely to speak Yiddish than Russian or German. During World War I, the World Zionist Organization set up a central office in Copenhagen in order to present the claims of the Jewish people at the Paris Peace Conference. Denmark then closed its door to further immigration in the early 1920s, as did the U.S. Today, almost all Jews in Denmark are, first of all, very integrated into mainstream Danish society. But second of all, the vast majority of them are secular, and they maintain a cultural connection to Jewish life rather than a religious one. There are three active synagogues in Denmark today, all of them in Copenhagen. The largest one is inclusive and sort of conservadox, but it follows a traditional liturgy. There is an Orthodox synagogue called Masikei Hadas, and Chabad also has a presence in Copenhagen. Shir Hatzafon, the Song of the North, is a reform synagogue and community that coexists with the others in Copenhagen. There are probably 6,000 Jews in Denmark today, of which maybe 2,000 are officially affiliated with some aspect of the Jewish community. But there are some clouds in this otherwise rosy picture, and the clouds are mainly a huge influx of Muslim immigrants, now numbering over a quarter of a million, and some of whom are quite openly hostile to Jews. There was an imam who said in a filmed lecture that was broadcast throughout Denmark that Jews are the offspring of apes and pigs. And in 2014, 
This same imam prayed publicly, O Allah, destroy the Zionist Jews. They are no challenge for you. Count them and kill them to the very last one. Don't spare a single one of them. So there's this kind of organized hostility against Jews that provokes sort of popular street incidents of anti-Semitism. And in the end, since late 2017, soldiers from the Royal Danish Army have been deployed to guard synagogues in Copenhagen to relieve the police of Denmark, who were increasingly occupied with gang-related shootings and street violence. It's interesting to note both the similarities and the differences in Danish-Jewish history to the history of the Jewish communities in Finland, Norway, and Sweden. But I hope that after this mini-series, you have at least a somewhat better understanding of what Jewish life is like and has been like historically in the far northern fringes of Europe. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon.